Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us again and thank you too to our YouTube viewers. As always, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, and please, of course, uh, please feel free to consider making a charity donation um, either to our two charities of, of choice, uh, the NHS Charities Together and Shelter, or, or to a local charity that you prefer. Um, we're thrilled to welcome this evening uh, Paul Brocklehurst, the chair of the Land Promoters and Developers Federation, more on whom later, for many years prior to that, CEO of Catesby Estates. Um, Paul, um, great to see you. Um, can you tell us where you're calling from and what you're drinking? Uh, good, good evening, everybody. And uh, I'm calling from the Cotswolds, Chipping Camden. I'm, uh, I'm drinking proper job. Uh, I'm delighted to see Paul's got a Cornish flag in the background. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and there's there's the old pirate uh, behind Chris, which I I think is presumption uh, doing some <laughs> fancy dress. I've got my Cornish tin with lamb and flag, and and bearing in mind Chris me Chris bigged me up as a pasty eater. For all of those for all of those of you that are going to go on Cornwall uh, to Cornwall on holiday this year, I'll uh, West Cornwall. If, if you want a good pasty, Hampson's, Hampson's, about 200 yards from Asda in Hale. Get there early because all the locals go there. So it is very, very good. Thanks, Chris. Why have you chosen <laughs> Cornwall? As, as, are you from Cornwall, Paul? Or, or yeah, well, I was brought up in Cornwall. Excellent. So um, I spent all of my formative years and then got out at 18, which... Um, yeah which when we come on to the later discussion, we might get into, really. Yes, excellent. Well, we're looking forward to that discussion, which Paul's going to lead. As, as I say, Paul, and you know uh, you know well, but now as a viewer of the show, um, uh, please do um, chip in uh, if, if you've got any interest in any of the case reports that we're um, dis discussing, but equally don't feel obliged to do so. Um, and I'm amused to see somebody said in the, in the comments, there's a giant coronavirus behind me. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. I've thought that looked like a coronavirus the best part of a year, and you're the first person to say so. <laughs> the person wrote that comment. Anyway, um, let's hear from the panel. Um, so, Mary, over to you, back in the woods. Hello, hello. I'm back in the wild woods of Wandsworth. And uh, hello, Paul. And I am holding, and look how empty this is. I mean, it's quite serious situation, this. This is my Padstow gin. And you, you hang on to the bottle and you take the empty bottle back to the shop in Padstow and they refill. So I'm really looking forward to my holiday. I will be down there at the end of July knocking on the Padstow gin shop in order to, to, to refill. 
We believe you, Mary, when you say you weren't there this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, how are you and, and, and uh, Captain Presumption? <laughs> yes, yeah, we uh, we like Cornwall here. We're big fans of Cornwall. And uh, so Presumption is on his surfboard, Paul. There he is. He's on his surfboard, uh, dressed as a pirate, drinking, though, West Country Cider. More of that later uh, as to why he's doing that. I, uh, I'm at home in Hogwarts Castle. I'm drinking proper job too, eh? We know, we know. But I'm drinking it from my um, Fifty Shades of Planning mug. There's a shameless plug. Charlie, right. have you, Charlie, have you been on Fifty Shades yet? Oh, <laughs> not <laughs> yet. This, okay. not yet. Um, Paul, he's, working how on it. He's, he's he's got the suntan. He's got the suntan. <laughs> he's <working laughs> <on it>. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very well, Charlie. Um, I ha however, I've got the Semperians flag up behind me because I've made an egregious northern person's error. Uh, yeah. When I checked the uh, the memo as to what the theme was and was told it was Cornwall, I nipped round to our local co-op that normally has an awful uh, lot of stock of good beers. And I, and I grabbed this, which is something called uh, Siren Soundwave IPA. And I grabbed it because it said that it was brewed in a place called Finchhamstead. Finch which I thought was in Cornwall, because it sounds Cornish, cut Fritch Hampstead, but it's in Berkshire. So I'm drinking something from Berkshire. It's pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> the reason why I've searched the internet to come up with a St. Perian's flag. So I'm really sorry, Paul. That is a complete fail. It's <laughs> Sasha, good of you to join us this week. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm glad you met my appearance for your demands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to be back after last week. Um, Anyway, lovely to see you all. I am. Um, it's. I'm very pleased about the Cornish theme. My mother was born in St Agnes, lived there for the first ten years. She did a Brocklehurst and then moved to Pastures New as she was slightly older. So I I love Cornwall and I had a very fun time at the EIP, the Cornwall EIP in 2014, where the program officer sat me next to the Kerno Society. And of course, they thought, here's a London barrister telling us how to do everything. And they were incredibly unfriendly. When I told them my mother was Cornish, I, they wanted to spend the rest of the evening with me. So um, sometimes that connection is very good. I'm in London. I'm just um, really pleased to see you all. And great to be back. Dennis, Ash, well, Charlie Banner here from Keating Chambers. Um, as you may have deduced from the fact that I was in Portugal last week, I'm currently in quarantine. Thanks for that, Boris. Um, so I haven't been able to go out and get any Cornish-themed beers. There are various bits of Cornish art on, on the walls, because I'm a big fan of going to Sir Ives and patron of the Tate, etc. I wasn't able to take anything down, but uh, so my contribution is is a vase that I got in St. Ives. It looks like it's an asteroid sliced in two, but it's not. It's metal bit weird but quite a nice colour anyway that's my that's my thing because um, I haven't got to go and get um, a a bottle of doom or proper job even though it's around the corner because I'm stuck here um, and um, well what's caught my new eye in the kind of news this week is today the Yorkshire Worlds has been put forward as a candidate for AOMB so congratulations to all involved in that including a friend of the show Stephen Hunt from East Riding Yorkshire very thrilled about that and in and quarter of an hour ago um, still better um, my very own certificate of lawfulness uh, uh, landed on in my email, which is rather rather fun for my own little planning job. So thanks to the Savills team in London for um, excellently helping me out with that. And without further ado, let's get to our case reports. Um, Chris, you're going to tell us first of all about a case called Danning and Sedgemore. I am. I am. I'm going to tell you about a case that involves a pub. And it's a pub in the West Country, Paul. Eh? 
happy memories in the eight bells and shipping Camden. Um, so uh, this is Danning against Sedgemore District Council, who I have to say are one of the most positive councils in the country. They welcome development generally, uh, but they're a bit too welcoming on this occasion. Uh, and David Folland. Uh, this is the case. Uh, Christian Hawley from number five acted successfully for the claimant in this case. Uh, Mr. Folland had probably had enough of planning by this stage, so he didn't feel he needed to be represented. It's about a pub in Somerset. Uh, the Pambra Inn is a public house on the north side of the Wells to Wedmore Road. I think we've got a photograph of that. There we go. Looks nice, doesn't it? In the hamlet of Pambra in uh, Somerset. It was a successful pub in the 1980s and 1990s, but it closed in 2014. Remained closed for two years uh, before it's bought by the current owners. They had a good go at trying to make it work as a pub. Uh, and during 2016, 2019, there were various efforts to open it. Um, but all of which were unsuccessful. So it closed again in June 2019, and it's remained closed ever since. In 2019, Mr. and Mrs. Follin made an application to convert it to residential, but one of the council's senior planning officers pointed out that they needed marketing evidence according to the council's uh, planning policies, which they didn't have, uh, so they withdrew their application and went ahead and quite properly marketed it. Uh, they came back with a second application in November 2020. Think about that. They're, they're now into the pandemic. Uh, their attempts to sell it had obviously been unsuccessful. Uh, they'd done it for 12 months rather than 18 months, but the officers took the view that was enough in the circumstances. Local residents mounted a strong objection to the proposal and the loss of a vital local amenity. And the council went on to consider the application, Sedgemore uh, has a relatively recent local plan adopted in 2019. There's also the Wedmore neighbourhood plan. And critical to this case is policy D35. I think if we bring up paragraph 11 of the judgment of the local plan, uh, you can see that that says the loss of existing services and facilities that meet the day-to-day -day needs of the local community will be resisted unless it can be demonstrated is, there is appropriate alternative provision available locally. There was, there was another pub, not in the hamlet, but nearby. There's no longer a demand for the use uh, and it's no longer viable. Well, they had all the evidence they needed on that. The facility is no longer fit for intended purpose and there is evidence of community consultation and consideration of alternative ways. Now, the challenge proceeded on the basis principally of those two underlying criteria and the facility no longer being fit for its intended purpose. Um, the report had focused on viability and marketing, understandably, after the officer's previous advice. Um, and the council accepted that each of the criteria had been met, but they hadn't addressed those two, the um, no longer fit for its intended purpose and evidence of community consultation. Now, interestingly, what the court said with its ever agile ability said, well, it didn't really matter that there hadn't been specific consideration of whether it was fit for its intended purpose. The pub had closed. It had remained closed. Uh, the evidence showed it wasn't viable and therefore it followed, the court said, that it wouldn't be fit to be used as a public house anymore. So although the criteria hadn't been specifically addressed, it was addressed by all the circum all the all the um, additional evidence and remaining facts. However, there was no evidence of community consultation and the court felt that was important, uh, that that was a separate criteria, should have been addressed 
and um, didn't not only found that the criteria had been uh, not properly looked at, but also didn't exercise the discretion. The court felt there was substance to that consultation uh, and it should have gone ahead. So it quashed the decision on that basis and also quashed it on the basis of failure to consider the public sector equality duty, which was also raised um, as a separate ground of challenge. Now, the court said it wouldn't have quashed purely on the basis of a failure to consider the public sector equality duty um, because uh, there was a striking absence of any evidence that the decision would have had any implications for those with protective characteristics. Um, in other words, they'd identified that there hadn't been consideration of this, but the court felt that it wouldn't really be any different. I don't think cider drinkers are a protected category. I don't. Um, and so as a consequence of which, the court said it wouldn't have been a stand-up point on its own. However, um, uh, they, the court said they would uphold that ground, um, parasitic really on the fact that the, there was substance to the development plan issue and the failure to consider that. So well done, Christian Hawley. We know how hard it is to land one of these successful high court challenges. Uh, I don't imagine that's much comfort for Mr. Folland and there's some other steps to go through. But um, yeah, a very West Country story. I think you'll agree, Paul. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris. People have been commenting on, on uh, presumptions, pirate outfit. It reminds me of, of one of my favourite jokes. Why are pirates called pirates? They just are. Um, anyway, I'll get my coat. I'm here with you. Um, now I I'm going to um, talk about a Greenbelt case. You might remember last week we were talking about um, the um, Zach Simon's um, uh, residential Greenbelt very special circumstance decision, uh, and since then on Monday, um, two employment um, very special circumstances um, decisions have been issued. Um, this time from the Secretary of State. Um, the, the two cases are taking them in turn um, a. Uh, Development described as strategic employment uh, development for industrial storage and distribution and or research and development at a site called Wingate's Industrial Estate in, in Bolton, um, which is on screen now. And the second one related to over 130,000 square metres in total of employment for space, principally um, former class B8 at junction 25 of the M6 uh, in Wigan. Um, both these cases were called in by the Secretary of State and they were considered by two very experienced inspectors, uh, Inspector Sims and, and Young, um, to, um, who were convened to hear inquiries into these and two other um, schemes. Now, um, that's interesting enough, uh, unusual enough, two inspectors, uh, multiple schemes being considered, et cetera, call in. But um, where it gets starts to get even more interesting is that both of these sites were in the Greenbelt. Um, they were obviously an appropriate development, uh, you know, massive employment uh, facilities and substantial weight was in accordance with policy given to the, the harm by reason of inappropriateness. Um, to different degrees, each of the two schemes also had additional harm by virtue of impact on openness, uh, etc. Um, however, both schemes were allowed by the Secretary of State on the basis of very special circumstances existing uh, by virtue of, of the, of the uh, benefits clearly outweighing the harm. Now, there are, there are nuanced differences between the reasoning in each case, and there isn't time to get to delve into that now. But the critical golden thread running across both decisions is that each scheme was found um, to be um, something which would contribute substantially 
to the national policy imperative under paragraphs 1882 of the MPPF to promote and support a strong economy, both in terms of job provision and economic investment, in areas where there was a substantial identified shortfall in the supply of the kinds of employment development proposed. Um, and there were no alternative sites that would deliver the same extent of benefit. Um, there were other benefits identified in each case, but it was clearly the economic investment and the jobs that, that generated the very special circumstances in the minds of the inspectors and the Secretary of State. Now, in one sense, that, that can be seen as a, a straightforward, non-political application of the very special circumstances test. The Secretary of State uh, was agreeing with the recommendation of, of his inspectors, um, that recommendation following an inquiry that heard detailed evidence on the issue. So in one sense, you know, relatively vanilla application of um, uh, the VSC test. But however, it is, of course, a powerful sign of economic considerations carrying very considerable weight in the context of, of the need to build our way out of the pandemic. No hint that changes to working patterns undermined uh, the, um, the, the case for, for employment uh, land supply. Um, and it's also, to my mind, hard to dissociate um, the, the government's levelling up or, or so-called red wall agendas from the fact that both these locations were in the north of England, one of which was described in the decision letter as an area suffering from severe economic deprivation. So it'll be interesting to see if um, these are end up being sort of one-offs or whether there's a, there's a theme here going forward. I can't help standing back as well, but think that um, it, it, these cases are probably also uh, an illustration of what's always occurred to me, which is... Um, it's easier, I think, to generate a very special circumstances case, the bigger the development is, which is sort of irony, that the bigger the development is, the, the greater the actual harm to the green belt, the greater the benefits. I think we touched on that in relation to a, a logistics site in the West Midlands um, a few months ago too, whereas if you're something much smaller, which might be a, a cumulative contributor, um, you're likely to be uh, faced with a more uphill struggle in relation to VSC. I say a, a somewhat um, irony, given that the greater the benefit, by definition, really the greater the harm in terms of the scale. Um, so that's all I, I want to say about that case. And now, Mary, you're going to take us from the north of England to Epping Forest um, and tell us about a planning appeal that's taken place there. Yes, so these are two linked appeals against the non-determination of two applications by Epping Forest Council, um, both of which were allowed after an eight-day uh, remote public inquiry. There were two separate applications made by Fairview Homes on land at Epping Forest College. So Appeal A was for the redevelopment of, as you can see, 139 homes, and that was on a previously developed land site. Uh, and the application was offering 16% affordable housing against a policy requirement of um, a, a very precise policy requirement uh, reported as being 32.6%. Whereas Appeal B was on a greenfield site, former playing fields, uh, and that was for 285 homes, and that they were offering a 30% requirement uh, uh, against, sorry, a 30% affordable homes against a 40% requirement. The reasons for refusal were quite similar, which is... Uh, important in terms of getting these two cases linked uh, and of course they were both Fairview applications um, and so the reasons for refusal related to um, an allegation that the uh, applications were 
uh, not creating a, a, a successful place, basically. Generic placemaking was the accusation. Uh, viability, the, uh, assess the information provided was inadequate. Um, and so the council couldn't justify, uh, couldn't tell whether the lack of affordable housing uh, full provision was, was justified or not. So this is Rupert Warren acting for um, the appellant and Gillian Garvey acting for the planning authority. And the context was no five-year housing land supply. And also, as those who've been watching what's going on in Epping Forest will know, um, an emerging but still not yet adopted local plan. It's taken them quite a while to get their local plan through. Both of these sites, this is the important point, both sites were allocated in the replacement local plan, which at the time of this appeal had been through examination. The inspector had looked at the main mods which were due to be consulted upon, and it's anticipated that there will be a, an adoption of that plan later on in the year. And importantly, the two main parties agreed that there was unlikely to be any substantial change to the policies. And so the inspector gave moderate to significant weight to those policies, although the third parties had turned up at the, at the local plan and argued that the former playing fields should not be allocated for housing, but should be in fact a, a greenfield site. So the inspector uh, was not particularly impressed by the uh, criticisms in relation to design. Um, thought that uh, they were all overplayed and that um, the development was broadly acceptable. Uh, there was an argument about uh, the car parking, which was in the form of podiums, uh, and the inspector thought that that provided some benefits because it removes, it, it reduced surface car parking, allowed for more communal open space around these uh, blocks. They were basically a, a flatted development. Um, and uh, other amenity points didn't find any favour. Um, and although there were some breaches, transgressions of the BRE, um, the policy was, was have regard to, and the inspector didn't think that um, that meant that the overall the levels of daylight and sunlight were inadequate. The viability complaint was quite interesting because the complaint was that by um, designing a scheme which had podium and un undercroft car parking, the developer was adding uh, an expense, an unwarranted expense, which was an unnecessary drag on the affordable housing. But because the inspector uh, took the view that the podium car parking offered advantages and said that the policy, uh, the allocations policy didn't prevent them, uh, he, he gave the appellant's viability assessments full weight and therefore found that the there was a policy justification. So overall, applying a tilted balance gave the housing significant weight, employment benefits, moderate weight, uh, and planning permission was granted. So uh, well done, um, well done, Rupert and uh, Fairview Homes. Thanks, Mary. Absolutely. Um, now, um, Sasha, you're going to tell us uh, about another High Court case. I am. It's probably as important as dust but I've taken it on a chin because I didn't want Tucker and Young to always have a view that they get the duff cases so my career has reached its epoch and then if I'm talking about the conversion of two of a house into two flats <laughs> don't we don't we need Lord Carnworth for this <laughs> well we probably do I know it's a shame I'm doing a case of this magnitude without the ears of the Supreme Court no offense to Paul but um no. Anyway, what I'm going to talk about is about a 289 challenge to seek to quash the decision of an inspector upholding an enforcement notice. 
It's obviously an issue particularly relevant for our open areas where someone acquires a property and then splits it into two. And all our budding lawyers know that is a change of use under Section 55.3, requiring planning permission. And what happened in this case, in essence, is the appellant alleged he had a Ground D appeal that effectively the use, the conversion had taken place more than four years. As a matter of evidential conclusion, the inspector concluded that they had satisfied the burden in relation to the first floor flat, but not in the ground floor flat. And not unsurprisingly, um, the appellants were a bit dissatisfied with that inspector's conclusion. But in any event, the key point which I think is most important to our, our watchers is that the judge upheld the inspector's conclusions and particularly upheld the burden and reinforced the burden that it is in an enforcement notice, of course, the, upon the appellant to discharge the burden of proof and show at least four years and at least four years of continuous use, which they had not successfully discharged. So all of you who are seeking to an appeal enforcement notice, remember whatever the time limit you need to show the four or 10 years and it needs to be continuous up to the date of the issuing of the enforcement notice. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Ash. That's definitely the, the peak of your career. Um, that <laughs> Apart from leading you. It's all that, yes. <laughs> yes, that, that's the late session of this show. <laughs> you asking the, the most immortal question of all time, but we can't reveal what that was right now. Anyway, uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass uh, over to um, resident Paul to welcome our guest, Paul. Hello, Paul. How are you? Um, so, Paul's, Paul Brocklehorst, Chair of the uh, Land Promoters and Developers uh, Federation, um, as opposed to Brian Waters, who tells us that he's the Chair of the London Planning and Development Forum uh, and wants to know who'd, who'd founded which first. Well, uh, I think the answer is he's first, um, but I won't ask who's got more members. So we'll, we'll cover that off later on, uh, Paul. So firstly, can you tell us who the LPDF are and why they're unconnected with the LP and DF? Um, basically, Paul, uh, a group of us in 2000, 2018 uh, decided that we felt that we were probably not best represented by the bodies that were out there um, uh, in terms of trade associations. So, um, you know, the HBF does a fantastic job on behalf of its members and uh, in terms of demand side uh, sort of involvement, but our members are very much focused on the planning system. So we were very keen to form a trade body which would ultimately be able to interact with government and try and influence the development of uh, planning policy and the implementation of the planning system, all with the aim of supporting housing delivery, affordable housing delivery, and actually increasing diversity of house builders. So uh, I think it's very important that we see more choice for end purchasers and end occupiers. Uh, and that's what I am utterly convinced that our members do within the system. So you probably answered this question by your last answer, Paul, but, but what's the, in general terms, the added value that's brought to the system by uh, strategic land promoters? 
Well, I, I think I think I won't I won't touch on the diversity point again, Paul. But I think from from my point of view, there's another uh, aspect to this, which is, uh, to all intents and purposes, we we probably have the most exposure to the planning system of anybody in um, greenfield housing delivery uh, in terms of establishing the principle of development. So outline consent. Uh, obviously, the house builders, they will follow up with their reserve matters or full applications. But in terms of the interaction with the planning system over the principle, I think that is that is where we are uh, highly expert. But in doing that, what we are trying to do always is find the shortest and quickest route through to a planning consent. Uh, and so... From, from that perspective, whether you are uh, looking at it from the market or a local authority, we are very, very useful to the housing delivery equation because we ensure speedy delivery. I heard it once said that it was taking the risk out of the riskiest planning system in in Western Europe. Yeah, um, it, it is, and I think when we when we get into it, we'll we'll start talking about some of the frustrations that we might all have at the moment. Well, j just in relation to that, which may or may not be a frustration, or it may be the Seventh Cavalry coming over the hill. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on the white paper proposals, and in particular, uh, is radical reform truly needed? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, there's. <laughs> There's an interesting part to that question, Paul, which is um, I wonder really whether it was a white paper. Um, uh, I, I actually feel that it would act, it would be doing a disservice to green papers, really. Um, uh, it was, and I think we're paying the price for it now, um, politically, um, but it was a ill-conceived not well-structured set of proposals with not enough substantiation behind it. And I think we all knew that there were things that could be improved within the existing system, but did we need somebody to come along and throw all of the balls up in the air and try and reinvent the wheel? And I think, I think the answer to that is, from all the participants in the, the sector, is no. Uh, and I, I think what they are doing now, and uh, I think what we are seeing, is uh, we, we are seeing a price being paid for that in political capital, uh, which um, obviously the Chesham and Amersham by-election has really just accentuated. And, and what, we're, what we're seeing within that is a, sadly, is a... a <laughs> Uh, a drive to the bottom in terms of simplifying the development and planning discussion. So we've got Liberal Democrats who are by, by and large seizing this as a, a short-term political opportunity to be anti-development. Uh, we've got a large section of the Conservative Party that seem to be uh, certainly presenting an anti-development agenda uh, and sadly, this week, the Labour Party seemed to jump on the same baden wagon as well. And so it, 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 and it all stems from that white paper consultation. Uh, and so 
I I actually am uh, really disappointed and very frustrated about the consequences of that. Well, Steve Quartermain, the former chief planner, has uh, has written quite eloquently in, in the national press that there are some obvious and straightforward steps that could be taken to produce quite significant improvements. Firstly, do you agree? And secondly, if you had a choice, Paul, what would be your top improvement that we could do without the need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Well, well, well I, I, I do agree with Steve. Um, I mean, whilst, whilst we were trying to be supportive of certain of the government's measures, our view was you shouldn't throw everything up in the air again. Uh, so to that, to that extent, we do agree with Steve. Uh, and, and I think the interesting thing is, is when we talk about it, we talk about reforms. Actually, the existing system in itself wasn't needing reform. It was just needing uh, implemented it properly yeah. uh, and, and potentially enforced. And of course, uh, the, probably the most important area to us all at the moment and the most frustrating is local plans. Um, and and the fact that they don't come through uh, with speed, perhaps with the right evidence base, uh, they don't come through strategically. So the duty to cooperate is is kind of um, is is half-hearted um, on the part of many local authorities. And of course, the white paper last year gave a number of local authorities the excuse to pause or abandon their local plan process. Yes. And so for me, actually, it's about the local plan. The starting point for everything is the local plan process and ensuring that uh, they come forward as quickly as possible. Now, we all realise um, that it isn't, it isn't uh, a, an easy process for a local authority or a quick process, necessarily quick process, but the basis of political decisions within that at a local level uh, are what also helps to make it a, a quick or a quicker process. And the fact is, is that we don't have local politicians that accept there is a housing emergency. But, you know, I, I just sat here with affordable housing delivery stats for certain local authorities uh, and one of those that abandoned its local plan last year was South Bucks. Now, between 2013 and 2017, they built 26 affordable homes. Now, on what basis socially and economically is that actually acceptable? And, and yet somebody has allowed them to get away with it. And, and it, it, it happens. And I think part of it is um, I, I knew that there was a bet within the Federation, I think, amongst some people, how long it would be before I mentioned the two words, Greenbelt. Um, <laughs> and here it is. I've thrown it in there. I've thrown it in there. And of course, it, it is actually... A very, we all know it's a very significant issue in large parts of the country. Uh, and what is disappointing, I mean, um, Charlie was talking about those uh, logistics decisions in the northwest of England. I think they were really important decisions because they came on the back of uh, Inspector Master's decision last week 
um, at Colney Heath in terms of very special circumstances and and effectively saying a shortfall, a significant shortfall is a very special circumstance. Um, And I think it's really hard and, and, you know, pins can always come in for a lot of criticism at times, I think, but those decisions are extremely important, especially if they're followed up by inspectors, other inspectors making similar decisions because they make Greenbelt local authorities think, actually, we need to have a local plan. And, and, and they then start thinking about getting on with it. And, and so for me, going back to your original question, Paul, local plans are the starting point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting observing in relation to Greenbelt, because although M, uh, MPPF and PPG2 before it said the essence of Greenbelt is their permanence, when I started off, and I suspect, Paul, the same time when mm. you started off, um, and in Lancashire, there was EIPs from Secretary of State endorsing structure plans saying green belts were meant to, meant to last for two and a half plan periods, which was 25 years. And the RSS said that there should be a review of the green belts in the northwest by 2016. Yeah. Um, that, so anyway. And, and, and just, just picking up on one of the points, uh, sort of it's, it's about the politics of it. We, we have these three decisions which sort of define very special circumstance. And, um, of, of course, two of them are Secretary of State decisions. So uh, very powerful messaging. And then on Monday, in the House of Commons, Christopher Pincher stands up and uh, says, notwithstanding the Select Committee report last week says there should be a national review of Greenbelt, he says to his backbenchers who are rebelling, he basically says... That don't worry, that is not going to happen. So ultimately, there is such a mixed messaging politically at a point in time when it is a critical issue to the delivery of housing in this country. Um, so one, one of the criticisms of local plans has been the lack of strategic guidance. Um, and obviously, as we, we all know, and we talked about last year, the standard methodology version two, Mark two, was brought in having an awful lot of build-up as to what it was going to do and how we get to it. And ultimately, we end up with the 30 largest cities having a, an uplift, a 30% uplift in terms of their requirements. Is that the way to achieve the government's targets of 300,000? And I'm suspecting that you may not be positive about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, absolutely. Um, I'm, I, I think it, it was a fudge. Um, it, it, it really was. Um, I think it's interesting that... It's being done at a point in time in the market where people are actually trying to, um, and and look, don't get me wrong, whatever I say, I understand the need and the necessity for town and city and urban regeneration uh, and uh, making those centres vibrant is extremely important. But it, it, it strikes me as odd that it's being done at a point in time when the market is basically saying people want a front and back door and their own private private space, green space, uh, and, and that is what is occurring out there. And, and just speaking in a planning system point of view, I suppose, the, the urban policy is going to, if, even if it were deliverable, it is going to take time to deliver. Um, so it isn't going to address anything in the short term, Paul. Uh, so from 
from my point of view, I think a lot of the current issues that are occurring and stresses that may be occurring in the planning system um, can be traced back to a missed opportunity in standard method two. And it was a missed opportunity. And I really, again, politicians um, uh, helpfully using words algorithm when that was overdoing what it was. It was actually a formula. That's all it was. It was a formula. It wasn't an algorithm. And um, I, I think it was also helpful in that it broke some of the link to debates about population projections um, and, you know, what the ONS are saying and having debates, uh, which the West Midlands Mayor is now doing about whether students were counted or double counted and so on and so forth. And and it it broke that link and it it created the story or the, the formula to get to what the required figure was. I think there is a bigger issue, Paul, which the industry can be very complacent about, which is we've all accepted the 300,000 number. And yet the National Audit Office two years ago uh, said the government haven't justified the 300,000 and why we need it to be 300,000. The Select Committee report said that. And actually... I think that's part of the problem with the political consensus and lack of it. I think if everybody realised that was the number, they would they would perhaps start to solidify about what needs to be done to deliver it. So moving to, to the, the role of strategic uh, land promoters um, and the... the design and build beautifully as we're told and yeah. we've uh, discussed this on the on the show a number of times um is the approach of strategic land promoters consistent with th- that part of the agenda uh, and and if not or even if so is there any role for design codes or something to tie a, a permission down to ensure that you do build beautifully whatever yeah. that means well <laughs> It, that was a an interesting final comment there um <laughs> uh, I, I i mean uh, from a personal point of view, um, as a land promoter in a personal capacity and on behalf of the Federation, I, I, I have no issue with the design and building beautifully agenda and uh, what people are seeking to achieve. And I think if design codes are drawn uh, reasonably, again, there is nothing necessarily to fear of them from them. I think there's there's a danger of overcomplicating things, uh, and that's what we have to guard against. And and my my biggest problem with the way the 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 agenda is sold is a, a, just a fundamental belief that what I find beautiful is not necessarily what you might find beautiful in terms of a a, a home. Uh, or a community building, or whatever it may be, and and I think that is that is part of what may be difficult in in what we come to have to deal with. But actually, in terms of the design agenda and some of the the issues 
that we're going to be asked to face. No, I, 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 land promoters will find that um, relatively easy to um, to bring into their whole application process. So, so asking you in your current role, and also mindful that you spent 15 years in charge of Catesby Estates, um, is there a time now to, to start being honest about the reason why people do object to planning applications, which tends to be self-interest? So in the continent, if you've got a planning application, the first question that you, you, uh, you're asked by the local mayor of the small village in South France is, what's in it for the community? Uh, an awful lot of objectors are objecting because they've lost their view. It's impacting upon their house value. It is, have we come to the time of realising that's what actually why those who promote development end up vilified by the local populace and we yeah. come to grapple with that as part of the system? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there are a couple of separate points in there, Paul. I think the loss of a view, I always have the feeling that when I go along to a public exhibition and I'm proposing something, the people that I expect and believe have an absolute right are the people who are the near neighbours because of the view or the Absolutely. impacts that it may have. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I think that's part of parcel of things. However, I, I, I do find the whole self-interest point disappointing in one sense because this is about delivery to improve the community. <coughs> And I, I, I alluded to it um, in, a, in a Cornwall context um, because property prices are so high there that actually it is very hard for young people to stay within the community. Uh, and, and so I, I don't look at something as if it's, um, it, it's impacting me personally. It's actually, does it benefit the community as a whole? Now, I think the first part of your question is always, I think, again, to land promoters is a rather frustrating one because I think we could all agree that there are times when we would wish to see some local infrastructure benefits uh, that would come from, from development. Um, but often, within the current Section 106 and SIL requirements, actually, you've got to justify it. And, and if it gets refused at a local level, their opportunity normally is, is, is lost. And how many instances have we all had where we would have liked to have offered something, we would wish it to go through at a local level so that it does, but it goes through the appeal system if it's refused, and actually, the inspector says, well, this isn't justified. It's not necessary. Now, I, th I think that's, you, you could argue that's a problem with the existing Section 106 and, and, and SIL regs. But um, I, I understand that point far more, really, than I understand the individual, because I think it's going back to the 50s and 60s and the heyday of house building, there would have been people impacted. But I think what's always, to me, what's interesting is it was never development, I don't think, was ever viewed in the same context as we view it now, disappointingly. Um, thank you, Paul. Those are all my questions. I'm going to ask Mary. I think, Mary, you have a question for Paul? I do. Thank you very much. 
the story of the two Pauls. Um, <laughs> is the dominance of a handful of national house builders a strength or a weakness? I, I think I, I, we can all anticipate what, what you're going to say, but how can we get more SMEs involved? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, I, I suppose there is, I, I, I'm, I'm answering the question in the, uh, by, by effectively saying, um, I think land supply, finance um, are constraints, but actually they're not, uh, certainly the financial, coming out of the financial crisis, it was definitely a constraint. And, uh, and I would have to um, uh, applaud the national house builder models for the speed of recovery. Of course, they had all of the demand side support from, from government coming out, but their operating models regained volume very quickly. Um, and we wouldn't have had that level of housing delivery in the years after the financial crisis uh, without it. However, I think finance now for small and medium-sized house builders is there, properly structured. Uh, uh, land promoters, we are seeing more and more small and medium-sized house builders bidding on sites that um, members bring forward to the market. So um, that is uh, that is helping their ability to uh, get land. Um, so I, I think the opportunity to broaden it is there at the moment, but the planning system isn't perhaps helping as much. I mean, I fundamentally, Mary, I believe that we will have an issue coming over the course of the next 12 months where the, the, there will be, um, and, and some people would argue we're already in the middle of it, which is there may well be a land supply uh, constraint on the whole house building industry um, because planning consents just aren't coming through quickly enough to replace the high level of sales that we're seeing at the moment. But I, I start from the basis that more house builders is a good thing. It, it, it is a diversity issue. It's a choice for um, it's a choice for the purchaser and occupiers, mm. and I, I I fundamentally believe that is is what is necessary. And slightly touching on that, we've also recently engaged with Richard Bacon, who's doing a uh, a review of the self and custom build market to see what they can do to expand that. And actually, he's a very positive. Um, individual yep. um, and I do believe that that done properly will also see a route for smaller builders to be delivering custom build product for people who want a bespoke home absolutely uh, and, and so I, I, you know their ambition is to see it grow to 30 to 40,000 homes per annum um, and if that happens, that that is a a multiple or a large multiple of where they are at the moment. Hmm. So, uh, am I allowed to ask a supplementary, Paul? Yeah. I mean, do you think that land promoters should be picking up the baton, as it were, on the custom build? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think on small smaller land promoters, I think there's a real opportunity. I really do, hmm. and I think if the I think if the um, custom build, if if Richard's Richard Bacon's sort of comments and uh, recommendations come through in a certain way, 
um, which I hope they will, that we will provide an opportunity for land promoters, especially smaller land promoters, to, to, to get into a market for the delivery of perhaps 20 custom-built homes on larger villages, yeah. smaller towns. Um, and, and interestingly, I think they will be, I, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I think they might be less contentious. I actually think they might be less contentious. I'm sure. I know I, 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 there's an opportunity there for local people, um, mm. an obvious opportunity. Thank you so much. I've hogged no. you lo long enough, I fear. <laughs> thank no you. Charlie, your turn to hog. Um, uh, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Actually, interesting. The, the um, first custom build inquiry I did, there were more people turned up in support of the development than there were against Greenfield yeah. Development. When do, you, when do you see that as an inquiry? Paul, um, over your career, um, do you uh, do you identify one particular period of government as sort of standing out as being uh, better in terms of overseeing an effective planning regime than any other period of government? And if so, which is it and why? Um, well, I, I, I don't think I can claim to go back as far as Clement Attlee um, and and the the post-war post-war unified national. Um, belief that they needed to develop and build more houses. Now, of course, it was a lot of it was because it was regeneration, but there was that belief, so it was a national effort. Um, so I'm not that old, um, far from it. Um, I, I think, sadly, over the recent past, the thing that I, I think I'll phrase it a different way, Charlie. I think the thing that has disappointed me most is just at the point where we had nearly agreed regional spatial strategies, we did away with regional spatial strategies. <laughs> um, and I think that is the, the lost opportunity mm. um, in, in planning. Um, and it, it, it certainly for quite a large period would have taken away a lot of the argument over numbers and distribution of numbers and potentially, interestingly, could have helped with the levelling up debate as well. So I, I think the I'll phrase it a different way because I think if we're honest with ourselves, for the last 20 years, I, I don't think we've had a period of stability and positivity and uni uh, unified belief that we need to address the housing emergency um, uh, throughout that period. But the closest we came was that point. And I, I think that that's how I view it. I think that was that was our lost opportunity. That's how I'll phrase it. Thanks. H hard to argue with that, to be honest. <laughs> Sasha. Uh, apart from moving, so your head is now framed by your two bookshelves, <laughs> sort of American business model. Uh, do you have a question? Yes, Paul. I think I think we. I mean, we talk always about systems. I mean, isn't the reality though that most local authorities are just completely overwhelmed by the requirements that are placed upon them? I mean, the resource issue you alluded to earlier. Most yeah. local authority planning departments are completely drowning frankly, yeah. with the demands placed on them. I mean, yeah. what do you, what does the LPDF actively, what steps can it take to well, assist LPAs to get adequate resourcing, frankly? I, I, I think I start, and in, in some ways, thanks for the opportunity, Sasha. I start from 
um, the position of, I think all of the members um, w fully appreciate the pressures that the professional planning officers are under within a local authority. And, and actually, I think there is a, again, a belief that they're not adequately resourced, and that may be in both the policy and development management teams. Uh, I, I think we have a suspicion that planning budgets are raided for other um, council purposes rather than just going into supporting the planning activities. And as part of, uh, we, we, we sent to government a couple of weeks ago, um, an agenda for action. And as part of that, a bit like uh, the select committee's recent recommendations, we believe there should be extra funding that is put into um, local authority planning departments. There should be a clarity of where that those um, collected fees from planning applications, uh, there should be a clarity for everybody that all of those go into the planning department budgets. Nothing leaks away because I think people are concerned that that is occurring. It may not be the case, but everybody's concerned that it, it, it is. Um, but we all believe that they need as much support as possible to come through what has been a difficult period. But I also think over the last five years, probably because of um, austerity and so on and so forth, the council uh, the council budgets, uh, planning departments have been one of the areas that have been m most hard hit, and yet and and yet it, it's the role of planning to play a key part in the economic development of that district, that borough, that county, and and that would generate income for that local authority area. And so I, 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 I just see that as, as part of the flaw within the existing system, system at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I had a comment from a, a head of planning service of, an, of a large North of England metropolitan authority who said, when I asked what could you do to improve the planning system, and uh, I was told, hypothecate planning fees to the planning, planning department and you'll have the best planning system in the world. And, and that was exactly what we said. Chris, I apprehend that you may have a question about uh, land promotion. Well, I might. Yeah, it's possible, isn't it? <laughs> Hello, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Paul. How Hi are you, there. mate? Yeah, we Hi. used to live in that. People don't know this. We used to live in the same village, didn't we? We, we did indeed, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, give my regards to your lovely wife, Katrina. I will do, yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, yeah, so my question, I'm going to ask Victoria Hill's question. She's CEO of the RTPI, and uh, she says, uh, what are Paul's top three must-dos for planning reform? So if you could change three things right now, what would they be? Uh, good question. Local plans, Yeah, because I think within the local plan system, uh, well, but I'll, I'll do three. Standard method go back to where we were, local plans. And then actually it would be the third point would be if we have adequate, if we've got the need figure right, we've got good local plans, 
Um, I'm going to I'm going to stretch this obviously to go beyond three now. Um, uh, amend the duty to cooperate within the local plan system so that it becomes at least sub-regional in form. I don't know whether sub-regional is the housing market area, I, I, but it, something needs to be done about cross-boundary cooperation. And then the fourth would be around um, uh, local authority resourcing to support uh the planning officers, the professional planning officers. What's interesting about that is a lot of that is what is actually sort of in the white paper about local plans, standard method. But I agree with you. We don't need to throw everything up in the air. That, that targeted reform is what's needed, isn't it? Not, it not, is. Yeah. Well, the, 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 I mean, Sasha has a, we talk about the planning system, but, but the existing basis is already there for a, a fully functioning planning model. Um, I'm trying to find another word for system now, um, but 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 it but it is there. What it needs is there's a bit of focus that needs to be brought to it. Um, uh, but uh, it needs implementing properly. But I actually think this comes down to the politics. It needs the will and a bit of consensus and bravery at a local and national level to get behind how many houses actually need to be delivered. And that seems to be what is lacking at the moment. Yeah, Royal, Royal Commission on the housing crisis, that's what we need. Mm. That, that'll report in 10 years' time, won't it? Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Paul, that's been fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. And, and also thank you to all those that have sent pirate jokes in, uh, of which my favourite <laughs> is, what do you call a pirate with three eyes? A pirate. <laughs> oh. That's worse than Charlie's. <laughs> mine's better. I think mine's I'll send better. you all the rest. <laughs> back to you, Charlie. <laughs> thanks, Paul. And thanks, Paul. <laughs> that was really, really insightful, fascinating. Really enjoyed that. Um, so uh, that's all for this week. Next week, we have Anna Rose, who's the head of the Planning Advisory Service. She's going to be our special guest. Um, same time, same place next week. So we will see you all then. I'm bursting to get out of quarantine. Fingers crossed the test to release tomorrow morning and I'll see you from somewhere else other than here which I've had enough of now um, this time next week Cheers. Take care. Thank you, Paul. Goodbye everybody Bye. Well that was the show we hope you enjoyed it if so uh, please do consider making a charity donation and if you want to watch us as well as listen the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday and it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel thanks very much to our producer and IT guru Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.